Hello and welcome to this week's Cosmic Creating Show. My name is Jan Shaw. I'm known as the Success Alchemist. You can find me at the successalchemist.net, the webalchemist.net, empoweredmanifestation.com, and on Facebook and YouTube, Jan Shaw, the Success Alchemist, and on Twitter at Coach Jan Shaw. Today is the 4th of December 2021. And the title of today's show is Maxwell and Smollett Trials, Distractions, Mandates Fail, and Interesting Resignations. So I'm going to start with the Maxwell trial because obviously we've been waiting a long time for this and we're seeing um, a lot of evidence come out about the sex trafficking activities of Jeffrey Epstein and of course you know Epstein isn't actually on trial unfortunately um, the question is whether he did actually kill himself or not but we are getting insights into the kind of activities going on in the Epstein household. Now because this is a federal trial uh, it seems that um, the law does not permit the live uh, transmission of video of these trials. So, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to watch all the proceedings in the way that we did with Kyle Rittenhouse. But there are independent journalists who are attending the trial and are reporting it. And the one that I've picked on to share with you is patriot1.substack.com. And he's putting out um, some general stuff about Epstein and Maxwell and so on. But he's also got a day-by-day -day, uh, report on the key elements of what happened during each day of the trial. So I'm going to read these to you um, because it's interesting. It looks like the defence is as bad as the Rittenhouse prosecutors in terms of what they're trying to get away with. And it's becoming patently clear that they have no real evidence to support Ghislaine Maxwell's claim of innocence. So, well, not guilty. So let's start with day one. In search of justice, the first day of the Maxwell trial. Despite no direct video coverage of the courtroom available due to federal case regulations... The Southern District of New York Courthouse is packed today for the initial proceedings and opening statements of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. And this was published November 29th. Maxwell is accused of participating in deceased power broker Jeffrey Epstein's international child sex trafficking operation with heavy implication facing a litany of related charges, including two counts of conspiracy to entice minors to travel to engage in illegal sex acts, two counts of transportation of a minor with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, one count of sex trafficking a minor, one count of sex trafficking conspiracy, two counts of perjury, in efforts to conceal her and Epstein's efforts demonstrated by a pattern of dishonesty while under oath. Second count added recently, not present on initial rap seat. So Matthew Russell Lee of Inner City Press provides a visual outside the courthouse. 
showing journalists ready to be funneled into crowded overflow rooms and preparing to report on a federal sex trafficking trial with global implications. And um, I'm not going to cover that. It's a video. Um, Lee also describes issues he's faced in attempting to gain press access to broadcast a call in line for the trial, citing procedural irregularities when compared to other cases he's covered at SDNY Courthouse. Lee, however, is in the overflow to report on proceedings. And that relates to the fact that a federal uh, lawsuit um, usually has a call in line so you can actually listen to the proceedings even though there's no video. But apparently um, the judge ruled against that, which is somewhat suspicious. Ian Maxwell, the brother of Ghislaine, attempted to frame a defence narrative for his sibling in an interview with the Associated Press. Ian expressed attitudes that minimise the seriousness of Ghislaine's alleged crimes, claiming the trial is overhyped and misdirected at Maxwell, although he fails to explain in any specific specificity how she is innocent and instead proclaims her innocence with no reference of evidence whatsoever. Ian proclaimed this is designed to break her. I can't see any other way to read it. And she will not be broken because she believes completely in her innocence. And she is going to give the best account she can. Despite Ian's claims, Ghislaine has an alleged history of providing false statements to legal officials to conceal her involvement in Epstein's crimes. This highlights the importance of drawing attention to patterns of perjury and dishonesty in the courts displayed by Ghislaine and conspirators in pursuit of favourable outcomes. According to MSN, several accusers have described Maxwell as being worse than Epstein, more involved with sex trafficking, recruitment and subsequent abuse. But her family insists she is taking the fall for Epstein's alleged crimes, citing no evidence. Epstein victor Jennifer Arios, I think that's how you pronounce it, provided a statement to CBS News this morning regarding individuals that conspired within Epstein and Maxwell's child sex trafficking operation, stating it was a huge web, a big enterprise, and I want everybody who was involved to face their day in court and have justice. Jury deliberation and opening statements. Um, I'm not going to cover that in detail. It's just that couple of uh, jurors have withdrawn because of um, not being able to be fair and impartial, blah, blah, blah. So um, I'm going to go into the opening statements for the prosecution, which commenced at roughly 2.15pm and have summarised below via inner city press coverage. The opening statement from Assistant US Attorney Lara Pomerantz details the high society status of Epstein and Ghislaine alongside graphic details regarding Maxwell's vital role within his wide-reaching child sex trafficking network. There were times she was in the room when it happened. That is why we are here today. Between 1994 and 2004, the defendant sexually exploited young girls. She preyed on them and served them up to be sexually abused. She was trafficking kids for sex. He owned a ranch in New Mexico, an apartment in Paris, a mansion in Manhattan, Palm Beach, a private island. Epstein has private planes and pilots. The defendant got to enjoy that luxury right along with Epstein. 
The defendant was the lady of the house. She imposed rules. Employees were to hear nothing, say nothing, say, see nothing, say nothing. There was a culture of silence. That was by design, the defendant's design. To get the girls to touch Epstein, they used the cover of massage. The defendant massaged Epstein, then told the girls to do it. Epstein brought girls into his massage room every single day. It was sexual abuse. Before I describe those so-called massages, let me say these are the facts. Epstein touched the teenage girls with equipment. He sometimes penetrated. The defendant helped Epstein find those girls for so-called massages. They lured their victims with the promise of a brighter future, then destroyed their lives. The defendant was jet-setting in private planes. So what happened to Jane? You will hear from her. Someone from Epstein's office invited her to Epstein's house. He told her mother he was offering a scholarship. Jane was 14, a kid. Epstein was in his early 40s, the defendant in her early 30s. Jane travelled to New York to Epstein's mansion where he abused her. She was not the only one. You will learn about multiple girls during the course of this trial. You will learn about a 16-year-old girl who travelled to the ranch in New Mexico. The defendant told the girl she was going to give her a massage, but she touched her elsewhere. The girl was 16 years old. There's a 17-year-old spotted in a parking lot. The driver pulled over. Maxwell was seen putting on her glasses and jots down notes. They moved beyond scholarships and moved on to a pyramid scheme of abuse. They encouraged girls to bring other girls for extra cash. The defendant knew exactly what she was doing. That's what we expect the evidence will show. You'll hear about a fund that paid millions to the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, but you will learn that these victims would have paid anything to have this not have happened to them. You will hear from relatives, you will hear from staff members, you'll see massage tables, a schoolgirl's outfit, you'll see other records, flight logs showing the names of some of Epstein's victims. At the end, we will speak again. Until then, pay attention, follow Judge Nathan's instructions and use your common sense. You will reach the only verdict possible that Ghislaine Maxwell is guilty. Bobby Sternheim of Maxwell's defence team started an opening statement with strange biblical references of feminine persecution and promotion of flimsy scientific concepts such as false memory. In an aim to shift focus away from Ghislaine's actions, Sternheim emphasised the crimes of Jeffrey Epstein, suggesting he was a master manipulator that Ghislaine also fell victim to. Sternheim then proceeded to praise the dead paedophile's positive traits and appearance, claiming Epstein radiated a halo effect. You can't make this stuff up. This was followed by wild assertions, which failed to be demonstrated through reference of evidence that attempted to state the victim's only motivations were monetary, preposterously claiming that every single victim has been primed by public servants to seek unreasonable reparations. Sternheim's direct quote, Epstein will be mentioned throughout the trial. He is the elephant in the room. He is consuming this entire courtroom and the overflow courtrooms. You are not here to judge Epstein. You are here to determine if Ghislaine Maxwell committed these crimes.
Epstein had many positive traits, attractiveness. He radiated what's called a halo effect. Ghislaine became his employee to administer his real estate like small boutique hotels. Like many New Yorkers, he wintered in Palm Beach. Throughout the course of Sternheim's opening statement, Pomerantz objected on three separate occasions, challenging conjecture presented to the jury as fact. Although Sternheim may aim to discredit accusers, he has failed to suggest the details of Maxwell's innocence, providing no explanation regarding her participation in Epstein's operation as he claims against her will. Initial proceedings suggest the defence is focusing on favourably selected conjecture, stirring the jury's imagination and aiming to establish an alternative narrative to that of which is not supported by evidence. It is hard to discern anything of significant substance presented by Maxwell's defence team in response to prosecution's opening statement Rather, a specific emphasis placed on priming the jury to be open to high-level suggestion and deflection can be observed. The day's proceedings concluded with the first witness testimony of the trial. Former Epstein employee and pilot Larry Viskovsky is the first witness that has been brought forth by the prosecution. Viskovsky was asked about and confirmed that he had been hired by Epstein in Ohio alongside an individual by the name of David Rogers, and subsequently worked for Epstein in New York, picking up luggage and installing video equipment. Viskovsky also confirmed that he flew Epstein's private planes out of Teterboro Airport initially, then later flying out of JFK and Newark, Newark airports due to larger aircraft infrastructure. So that's the end of the first day. So on to day two. And this one is titled A Pattern of Predatory Behaviour, Day 2 of the Maxwell Trial. A nightmare that would last for years, that's how alleged Maxwell and Epstein child sex trafficking victim, may known to the public under the pseudonym Jane, described her first encounters with her abusers from the witness stand of the SDNY courthouse earlier today. Lead prosecutor Lana Pomerantz would introduce her to the jury as the first of four accusers set to give testimony relevant to Maxwell and conspirators' involvement with Epstein's international operation. During her response to prosecution's inquiries, Jane recalled first meeting Maxwell and Epstein at a summer camp in 1994 while pursuing a career as a vocalist stating she was approached by Epstein, who at the time described himself as a donor, when she was only 14 years of age. Shortly thereafter, Jane and her mother were invited to Epstein's Palm Beach mansion, where abuse of Jane, graphically described by Jane during testimony, would be perpetrated by Epstein and later Maxwell, after they allegedly groomed Jane by way of buying her clothing, including underwear from Victoria's Secret. Jane elaborated as to Epstein and Maxwell's gradual normalisation of sexual abuse involving several minors, testifying that other encounters involved sex toys or turned into oral sex orgies with other young women and Maxwell, she added. Testimony regarding a trip to Epstein's New Mexico ranch involving Jane was also provided. When asked by prosecution what did they, Maxwell and Epstein, 
tell you about their social circle. Jane responded, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, Mike Wallace. When asked to recall how Epstein's house was decorated, Jane responded with art, sculptures, pictures of famous people, presidents. Some of the art was odd, naked women, creepy animals. Testimony regarding discussions Jane had with Epstein after attempting to seize contact with him provides a particularly chilling example of the threatening approach employed by Epstein to manipulate minors. Epstein kept calling me and saying he wanted to see me, that I needed to be grateful to him, that my mother was living in one of his apartments. During the day's initial proceedings, Larry Vizoski testified, confirming Jane was present during at least one occasion during his time working for Epstein. Vysotsky claimed he had not been aware of her age at the time, but stated she had been present on Epstein's private plane and confirmed meeting her in the cockpit of the so-called Lolita Express. When asked if he had witnessed any sex acts involving minors, Vysotsky responded, absolutely not. Vysotsky's testimony concluded with his overt acknowledgement of Maxwell's role in Epstein's operation, unmistakably identifying Ghislaine as Jeffrey's number two. Viskoski also identified several well-known public figures when asked who he had seen during his time piloting the Lolita Express. Lawrence acknowledged that Bill Clinton, Duke of York, Prince Andrew, Donald Trump, and US Senator for Ohio, John Glenn, also the first American to orbit the Earth, all flew on the Lolita Express during the time he worked as a pilot for Epstein. Preliminary arguments from prosecution are supported by several claims made today by both Viskoski and Jane, specifically identifying Maxwell's direct and entrenched personal involvement with Epstein's child sex trafficking and abuse operation. After today's session, alongside heavy implication of Maxwell, it can now be cited as public record that testimony given in a US court of law identified Jeffrey Epstein's observable relationships with two former US presidents, a former USA senator stroke astronaut, and a member of the British royal family. One would expect prosecution may seek more context from witnesses to follow regarding the extent of involvement and implication of these individuals mentioned above. And it says the court proceedings will continue tomorrow, starting with opening testimony of a male witness briefly referenced during Jane's testimony being made known to the public as Matt. And so that's the end of day two. Day three, a disingenuous defence. Day three of the Maxwell trial. Lead defence attorney Laura Menninger would open this morning's court proceedings by cross-examining alleged Maxwell and Epstein child sex trafficking victim known as Jane. Menninger structured her initial questioning alongside a 2019 FBI document she claimed contradicted Jane's testimony given the day prior. You testified yesterday you first had sex with Epstein in his pool house in Florida, but you told the government it was in New York. Jane responded, saying, I said that, but I was incorrect in my timeline. I was 14. Menninger had unintentionally highlighted the absurdity of her line of questioning and subsequent scrutiny, as expecting Jane, now an adult, to still be acutely aware of or keep orderly knowledge of exact specifics, acts, time and date, 
relating to a sexually traumatic event she experienced as a child is reprehensibly obtuse. This opening inquiry would set the tone for a defence struggling to address mounting testimony and evidence regarding Maxwell's involvement in heinous acts of child sex abuse and trafficking, instead choosing to redirect discussion towards preliminary investigative documents and the alleged victim's personal life in attempts to redirect discussion. During this cross-examination, Jane confirmed that Epstein had brought her to Mar-a-Lago, where he introduced her to Donald Trump, who she was not accused of, who she has not accused of wrongdoing. She was 14 years old at the time. Jane also recalled travelling on Epstein's private plane with Prince Andrew, Duke of York, and Adam Perry Lang, celebrity chef who worked for Epstein as a personal chef between 1999 to 2003. Although Ghislaine's defence had spent days prior proclaiming her own victimisation perpetrated by Epstein, today's focus was shifted in attempts to bring doubt as to the extent of Maxwell's awareness of sexual abuse perpetrated by Epstein, suggesting she never saw sexual abuse which directly contradicts present evidence and testimony. This argument was packaged alongside the repeated assertion that reparations received by Jane through the Epstein Victims Fund should have already settled any potential responsibility relating to Maxwell and her role in Epstein's operation. Multiple efforts were made by the defence to misrepresent the nature and context of certain documents to the jury. Examples included badgering the witness to agree with Menninger's conjecture, guiding and leading the witness to evidence referenced by the defence attempting to mislead the jury by representing third-party accounts from journalists and government officials as direct statements of Jane's, which was swiftly objected to. It was during this time that Jane revealed she had been blackmailed by a journalist, claiming the publication she had spoken to was planning to print comments she had requested to redact. A particularly inflammatory line of questioning was pursued by the defence when manager asked Jane. And incidentally, there are links to the actual testimony, which is recorded in tweets by Inner City Press. And, and the uh, Twitter handle is at Inner City Press. So if you want to go and see the actual testimony as it happened, um, you can go to that link. Uh, OK, carrying on. So Menninger asked Jane, you're an actor, so you've played roles such as cancer patient. Can you cry on command? Have you acted as a prostitute before? These clear aims to humiliate and misrepresent the, the witness border on bad faith action, having little relevance to Jane's allegations. Another observable instance showing Menninger's willingness to provoke insistent, inconsistent narratives revolving around unrelated details of the alleged victim's adult life, failing to realise its irrelevance to abuse inflicted on them by Maxwell, Epstein and known conspirators when they were children. Not only is this argument posited ethically deplorable, as prosecution demonstrated in follow-up questioning, it is legally flawed. Jane was brought to tears when prosecutors asked her, do you know the difference between acting and real life? In an effort to demonstrate her understanding of the reality and extent of abuse experienced. 
providing a moment of insight into the lasting trauma endured by child sex abuse victims and the particularly difficult path forward for those seeking justice. AUSA Pomerantz made best efforts to object on several occasions to ensure the witness was not overtly misled. Judge Nathan allowed the defence to parade alternative narratives without providing further context with relative leniency, but sustained specifically clear attempts to lead the witness. Following Jane's testimony, an individual made known to the courthouse's Matt, an ex-boyfriend of Jane's from 2006 to 2014, who stated he still works on set of the same TV show as Jane, proceeded to the witness stand. He would continue to provide a statement that identified Ghislaine Maxwell as the woman described to him by Jane years prior as her abuser. Yeah, I asked Jane, is that the woman you told me about? And she said yes. Following Matt's testimony, the third and final witness called to the stand was Daniel Vesselon of Interlochen, Interlochen, Michigan. The day's proceedings concluded with US Attorney Moe providing a document to Vesselon that disclosed donations made to Interlochen Performing Arts Camp on behalf of Epstein, who had a scholarship lodge named after him on the camp's property. Few hours had passed following the courtroom's adjournment when Maxwell's brother gathered press to nearby location to hold a no-questions press conference following a particularly damning day of legal proceedings for Ghislaine that highlighted the defence's inability to provide significant evidence exonerating her of being complicit in Epstein's global child sex trafficking operation. So that's the end of day three and moving on to day four. The Black Book emerges, day four of the Maxwell trial. Following a series of emotionally intense courthouse sessions earlier this week, Thursday's proceedings commence this morning at the SDNY courthouse with testimony given by fourth witness of, by the fourth witness of the trial, Paul Kane of New York City's Professional Children's School. Kane will be asked by prosecutors to verify the validity of a document listing Jeffrey Epstein as person of financial responsibility for a 12th grade student's application to New York City's Professional Children's School. Paul would then be cross-examined and excused by the defence. Kane's testimony would result in several objections and a sidebar regarding the legitimacy of information displayed on the document after the defence attempted to misrepresent evidence to the jury by leading the witness. Dr. Lisa Rocchio, the fifth witness to take the stand, was introduced by the prosecution as a grooming prevention expert. Her testimony would discuss known and repeated strategies, also employed by Maxwell and Epstein, to groom underage sex trafficking victims. These predatory behaviours included establishing relationships with the parents of the child in an effort to gain the child's trust, persuading trafficking victims with gifts or money, gradually normalising sexual assault and abuse, and isolating their victims from potential support groups, also a known cult strategy. Rocchio's recollection of previous instances of abuse she's observed during her time as a professional paints an incredibly grim picture of the predatory, manipulative strategies pursued by paedophiles that aim to groom children for sex. 
I've seen grooming in the Boy Scouts through a special camping trip or jewellery, anything to make the children feel they are appreciated. Continuous objections to Rockier's testimony by the defence would provoke the day's first private sidebar called by Judge Nathan. Rockio made statements acknowledging the high occurrence of repeated abuse suffered by child sex trafficking victims, responding very common when asked, how often is it for a child to be abused by the same perp? The grooming prevention expert would also explain that it is statistically unlikely for any child who is being sex trafficked to attempt to report the abuse to the police. Cross-examination of Dr. Rocchio would soon bring several objections from prosecution as defence attempted to lead the witness to comment on unrelated hypothetical situations relating to the effect of brain injuries and alcohol on memory recall. Judge Nathan sustained several objections made on the grounds of lacking foundational relevance. Maxwell's defence team excused Dr. Rocchio. One Patricio Alessi was called by prosecution next, the sixth individual to occupy the witness stand. An Ecuadorian national, one stated he was formerly employed by Lex Wexner's mother. Um, it's worth remembering that Lex Wexner, Wexner owns the organisation that um, includes Victoria's Secret and he was um, very closely connected with Epstein. Um, one had worked on Miss Wexner's house where he had met Epstein, who eventually hired him as a house manager. One would proceed to disclose he possessed a close relationship with both Maxwell and Epstein, stating he had his own room at Epstein's Palm Beach mansion and would bring his wife and other girls to help him when working for the now deceased pedophile. One would also describe Ghislaine Maxwell as the lady of Epstein's house, stating Maxwell accompanied him to Palm Beach 95% of the time. One also suggested he had reduced contact with Epstein once Maxwell started handling Jeffrey's schedule and affairs. Alessi would proceed to reference a checklist given to him by Maxwell, stating specifics relating to how employees of Epstein were expected to conduct themselves. One line reading, remember that you see nothing, hear nothing, say nothing, except to answer a question directed at you. Other requests made by Maxwell that he felt were particularly degrading were also detailed, providing insight into efforts made by Ghislaine within her social life to demean and humiliate those around her, perhaps a quality nurtured and encouraged by her now deceased father. Alessi also disclosed a visit to Epstein's Island. I was on a cruise with my wife to St Thomas. They picked us up and showed us little St James. It was huge. One proceeded to inform prosecution of the normalised routine of Epstein's child sex abuse, stating he remembered Epstein would receive three massages a day. Alessi would describe numerous occasions that he had cleaned up Epstein's massage rooms. This testimony would also identify several other individuals that were present at Epstein's Palm Beach mansion, specifically mentioning the presence of Maxwell's assistant, then Sarah Kellen, and recalling several instances of witnessing Jane and Epstein child sex trafficking victim Virginia Gouffre Roberts at Epstein's Florida address. 
Alessi also testified as to the authenticity of both Epstein's black books, both the 1997 copy and 2015 copy leak by Gorka was authenticated. Also mentioning Maxwell kept a call directory engraved with her initials that he had witnessed. One stated he had seen these books on several separate occasions and recalled they were full of names, acknowledging the evidence as known to him. This is significant as it allows attorneys to reference the black books as legitimate accounts of evidence, providing tools for prosecution to evaluate the motivations for Epstein possessing such relationships. Thursday's court proceedings would conclude with Alessi identifying several individuals present in photos with Epstein that were on display inside the Palm Beach mansion. One stated, photos of Epstein with important people, Donald Trump, the Pope, Fidel Castro, I think. Alessi also stated he had been questioned by police after receiving $6,300 from Epstein, but was not arrested. One recalls signing a non-disclosure agreement when working for Maxwell and Epstein, a common tactic employed by abusers in efforts to convince the victim of illegitimate legal understandings, as by law, an NDA cannot apply to information relating to any legal activity in any way. Alessi's testimony will continue tomorrow as defence opens proceedings with a cross-examination of witness Alessi. So, moving on to day five. Searching Epstein's house, day five of the Maxwell trial. Following a week of extensive deliberation from prosecutors pursued in efforts to provide further context to the jury, the public and journalists alike would shuffle into overflow rooms fitted with live video feeds once more on the morning of December 3rd, 2021, Day 5 of the Maxwell trial would commence with prosecution establishing the noted relevance of schoolgirl outfits owned by Epstein and Maxwell to establish consistency within previous alleged testimony given previously. Cross-examination of Epstein's former house manager would follow. One, Alessi, a witness that had authenticated Jeffrey Epstein's infamous black book the day prior. Prosecution proceeded by questioning Alessi as to the whereabouts of $6,300 and a handgun, both of these allegedly stolen from Epstein. It was at this moment the defence would make an incredulous regression. The full legal name of witness known as Jane would be repeated aloud for the jury and public to hear on two separate occasions, shocking observers within the overflow rooms. Judge Nathan firmly reminded the defence of their obligation to abide by the rules of the court. After this stern warning, the defence would scrutinise a previous 2016 deposition under the premise that it contradicted one's identification of Jane made the prior day. Further request for Alessi to explain the extent of his own awareness pertaining to Epstein's child sex trafficking operation was also requested by the defence as he had given testimony recalling the cleaning of massage tables and sex toys of Epstein's used in criminal child sex acts, implicating him directly. The defence asked, Mr Alessi, at Mr Epstein's direction, you called women and set up massages, correct? He responded, yes. Questioning proceeded. And when you cleaned the massage room, you had seen signs of violence, right? 
No one complained to you about that? Alessi proclaimed that he was somewhat oblivious to the child sex trafficking operation he had enabled and assisted, responding, No, but I wish they had. I would have done something. It was reported that observers within the overflow rooms responded to this assertion with laughter as it was difficult to believe Alessi could stay ignorant of such clear signs of child sex abuse during his tenure of employment. Alessi was excused by the defence. Officer Gregory Parkinson of Palm Beach Police Department would take the witness stand next. Parkinson was requested by prosecutors to verify a video of an FBI walkthrough conducted in 2005 along with several items that were seized as evidence from Epstein's Palm Beach mansion following his arrest. Throughout this testimony, Officer Parkinson would authenticate a photo of Pope John Paul II blessing Epstein and Maxwell during a trip to the Vatican in 2003. Four other individuals appear in photo, but only one is identifiable. A woman in a burqa can be seen in the background over the right shoulder of Epstein with two other individuals at her sides. There is also another Vatican official seen above the Pope. Parkinson would continue to verify several other personal effects of Epstein's, including a massage table. An extremely brief cross-examination from Maxwell defence attorney Everdell mistakenly guided Parkinson to identify photos owned by Epstein that were allegedly stored openly on his desk, where Ghislaine would have been able to witness them. Officer Michael Dawson, Palm Beach Police Department, would take the stand as the final witness of the week's proceedings at 4.38pm. Dawson will proceed to describe the disturbing array of personal items seized from Jeffrey Epstein during the 2005 raid on his Palm Beach mansion. When asked, what were you looking for during the search, Dawson responded, massage tables and oil, sex toys. There were a lot of photos of nude females. We seized a phone book, a massage table, photo of a nude female and a sex toy called the torpedo. This testimony now adds specific scrutiny of the legal proceedings that followed such findings in 2005. Overt failure to follow up by law enforcement officials should be noted. The week's proceedings concluded following a cross-examination of witnesses Dawson and Alessi as the defence desperately attempted to shift the jury's focus to the aforementioned theft of Epstein's personal effects with little success. Judge Nathan adjourned proceedings at SDNY Courthouse at roughly 4.59pm Friday afternoon. Day 6 coverage of the Maxwell trial will return on Monday the 6th of December as focus turns to further scrutiny of Epstein and Maxwell's network. So there you have it. And um, it was, as I said at the beginning of before I was reading these um, reports, the the defense, Maxwell's defence do seem desperate and don't seem to have anything um, substantial in in the form of defence material evidence. So we'll see what happens as things carry on. Apparently there was an attempt by, I think it was CNN, to um, smear Trump because he was mentioned as one of the people that had travelled on uh, Epstein's plane. But the truth is that he only flew from 
I think it was from Mar-a-Lago from Florida to New York. He never went to the island or to um, Epstein's homes. And of course, he uh, threw Epstein out of the Mar-a-Lago club when it was reported to him that Epstein had been harassing young girls and, again, trying to recruit them. So, you know, they've tried to find so many things on Trump and none of them have worked, and I think this will be another failure. Okay, so I'm going to do a quick update on the Jussie Smollett case. And this was from the 1st of December, updated the 3rd, and it says State Rests Case at Smollett trial after star witnesses. Um, The state rested its case at Jussie Smollett's trial Thursday after key testimony from two brothers who said the former Empire actor plotted a racist and anti-gay attack on himself in downtown Chicago and paid them to carry it out. After a three-day presentation of evidence, Special Prosecutor Dan Webb told the presiding judge Thursday evening that the prosecution was done. The defence began its case immediately, calling, among others, an emergency room physician who saw Smollett after the purported attack. Judge James Lynn told jurors there will be no testimony Friday, saying he expected they will begin deliberations no later than Tuesday. The physician, Dr. Robert Torelli, testified he treated Smollett after he went to a hospital early on January 29th, 2019, telling Torelli he'd been attacked, punched and kicked. Torelli said Smollett had some bruises and scratches, but no serious injuries. Before the state rested Thursday, Smollett's lawyer worked to discredit the brothers' accounts suggesting they attacked Smollett because they didn't like him and tried to get him to pay them each $1 million not to testify that he staged the assault. Defence attorney Shay Allen suggested the brothers were motivated to accuse Smollett of staging the hoax because they disliked the performer who is gay and black and then saw an opportunity to make money. Um, it does go on to say that actually they were at a an LGBT uh, rally, which decries the idea that they were anti-gays and so on, which is mentioned in the in the um, report. I'm not going to um, continue with the rest of this because I need to get on to other subjects, but it seems from the testimonies of the two brothers that um, there was no way that you know, they actually perpetrated the attack. It was very much uh, arranged by Smollett himself for um, notoriety, shall we say. And the brothers both said that they didn't expect him to go to the police. They thought he was just going to do stuff on social media. So I think there's a very strong chance that Smollett is going to be found guilty. We'll have to wait and see when it continues next week. Um, Obviously, I think the trial of Maxwell is a much higher profile case. And there have been a couple of distractions this week to try and take people's attention away from what's going on at the trial. So, you know, the first thing we've had is this school shooting in Oxford, Michigan, And I've got an article from Patriot Fetch here. Michigan school shooters' parents 
met with admin hours before killings. 15-year-old son charged with terrorism and murder. I mean, this is really shocking. As with the Parkland, Florida school shooter, another disturbed student in Michigan displaying signs of having a sociopathic disorder was allowed to attend public school, giving him access to students, resulting in a mass killing. Instead of asking the tough questions like why was he allowed to attend the school, political opportunists immediately blamed the gun and resumed their attempt to advance stalled, tough gun legislation, which if passed would not have stopped this shooting. Ethan Crumbly, the 15-year-old suspect accused of opening fire at his Michigan high school in Oxford, about 40 miles north of Detroit, pleaded not guilty on Wednesday to one count of terrorism causing death, four counts of first-degree murder, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, and 12 counts of possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony. The shootings took place shortly after his parents met with Oxford High School administrators Tuesday morning, according to Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard. It was the second time administrators had met with Mr Crumbly this week, who had also met on Monday with Mr Crumbly over his son's concerning behaviour, Mr Bouchard added. Crumbly opened fire with a semi-automatic handgun on his classmates, police said, in what prosecutors described as a planned shooting. In response to the premeditated nature of the attacks, he is being charged as an adult. Lieutenant Tim Willis told Judge Carniak, who ordered Crumbly to be held without bond and transferred to Oakland County Jail, that Crumbly reported recorded videos on his phone the night before the incident in which he talked about shooting and killing students the next day at Oxford High School. Further, a journal was recovered from Ethan's backpack, also detailing his desire to shoot up a school to include murdering students, Willis said. He appeared in Oakland County Court by video on Wednesday, slumped over in a vest, white mask and glasses. State Senators Brenda Carter and Rosemary Bayer, who represent the district that Oxford High School is located in, released a statement from the Legislature's Firearm Safety and Violence Prevention Caucus on Wednesday calling for common-sense gun safety legislation. Um, and it seems that now the parents have been charged and it's I think it's like a negligent homicide or something like that um, as being responsible for this gun to be in the hands of their 15-year-old son. So we'll see how that goes. But it seems that the school was potentially negligent as well in allowing the, ch the child to continue to attend school after all these issues. Now, by saying it's a distraction, I'm not trying to downplay the, na you know, the nature of this horrible, tragic incident again. But it's interesting that there's a great deal of difference between the fake news media coverage of this, because it relates to the potential to tighten up on uh, gun laws, versus the way that they're reporting or, or not reporting on the Waukesha massacre, which killed six people, one of them an eight-year-old child, and injured dozens of others. So um, obviously it doesn't fit their narrative, a black person mowing down all these people in the Christmas parade. The other thing, of course, that has been in the news a lot is this Omnicrom, 
variant that I mentioned on last week's show, which seems to be a complete nothing burger because no, no deaths. It's supposed to be a milder form of COVID if COVID exists. And even a doctor in South Africa, which is where uh, Biden has imposed these flight bans, uh, saying it's being blown out of all proportion and, you know, there's nothing to worry about. So that's been in the news a lot as well. But the good news we've got this week is that um, Biden's mandates, vaccine mandates, are being overturned. And I'm going to start with a Gateway Pundit article And this says the COVID-19 vaccines do not prevent transmission of the disease. Judge Doughty's ruling destroys Biden's vax mandates. Uh, The Gateway Pundit previously reported that Louisiana U.S. District Judge Terry Doughty blocked a federal COVID-19 vaccine mandate for healthcare workers on Tuesday. The ruling by Judge Doughty follows Missouri U.S. District Judge Matthew Shelp's ruling on Monday that blocked mandates in 10 states. Judge Doughty pointed out all the illogical and irrational contradictions in the mandate. If boosters are needed six months after being fully vaccinated, then how good are the COVID-19 vaccines? And why is it necessary to mandate them, says Judge Doughty in his ruling. The complainant provided evidence based on Dr Peter A. McCullough's declaration the COVID-19 vaccines do not prevent transmission of the disease among the vaccinated or mixed vaccinated unvaccinated populations. Mandatory COVID-19 vaccines for hospitals do not increase safety for employees or hospital patients. McCullough declared that additional treatment with other drugs and supplements has resulted in an 85% reduction in hospitalizations and death of high-risk individuals presented with COVID-19. Dr McCullough revealed the current vaccines also don't adequately cover the Delta variants. The Gateway Pundit also published an article in which the New England Journal of Medicine explains how COVID vaccines may produce spike proteins that may lead to myocarditis and neurological concerns. In other words, even if you are fully vaccinated, you still may become infected with the COVID-19 virus, Judge Doughty's ruling said, although CMS spent pages and pages attempting to explain the need for mandatory COVID-19 vaccines, when infection and hospitalisation rates are dropping, millions of people have already been infected, developing some form of natural immunity. And when people who have been fully vaccinated still become infected, mandatory vaccines as the only method of prevention make no sense, the ruling continued. The Gateway Pundit previously reported that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, COVID response team published a study on MedRxiv, a collaborative project jointly run by Cold Spring Harbour Laboratory, Yale University and BMJ, that's British Medical Journal, a global healthcare knowledge provider, concluded there is no significant difference in transmission potential of vaccinated and unvaccinated persons infected with the COVID-19 Delta variant in federal prison during an outbreak between July and August 2021. And it's actually got uh, an insert of the whole of that um, ruling.
So on top of that victory against um, mandates for health workers, this is Epoch Times. Judge blocks Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal contractors. Uh, the ruling applies to three states. A judge on Tuesday blocked President Joe Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal contractors, finding that Biden likely lacks the authority to force them to get vaccinated. This is not a case about whether vaccines are effective. They are. Hmm. Nor is this a case about whether the government at some level and in some circumstances can require citizens to obtain vaccines. It can. U.S. District Judge Gregory Van Tatenhove, a George W. Bush nominee, wrote in the 29-page order. The question presented here is narrow. Can the president use congressionally delegated authority to manage the federal procurement of goods and services to impose vaccines on the employees of federal contractors and subcontractors? In all likelihood, the answer to that question is no, he said. The judge granted a request for a preliminary injunction by the attorneys general of Kentucky, Ohio and Tennessee. The White House did not immediately respond to requests for comment. This is not about vaccines, it's about the mandates. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, a Republican, said in a statement, the judge's opinion clearly states that, and it has been our position all along that the president cannot impose these mandates on the people. Biden signed an executive order on September 9th that led several weeks later to the White House requiring contractors force all their workers to get a COVID-19 vaccine unless the worker is entitled to an exception. Contractors who did not comply with the order originally set with the December 8th deadline were poised to lose the government's business. The state charged that the vaccine mandate was both illegal and unconstitutional in part because it was imposed with little regard to important aspects surrounding the mandate, including but not limited to economic impacts, cost to states, cost to citizens, labour force and supply chain disruptions, the current risks of COVID-19 and basic distinctions among workers such as those with natural immunity to COVID-19 and those who work remotely or with limited in-person contacts amongst other aspects. Van Tatenhove sided with the states. Defendants, he said, failed to point to a single instance when the Services Act was used to promulgate such a wide and sweeping public health regulation as mandatory vaccination for all federal contractors and subcontractors. He also expressed concern that the mandate intrudes on an area that is traditionally reserved to the states, citing the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution. A preliminary injunction means the mandate is blocked for now in the three states with the possibility of becoming a permanent block or eventually being allowed to take effect. A preliminary injunction has already been entered against the Biden administration's healthcare worker vaccine mandate and a similar mandate for private businesses. So there you have it. Um, the top comment on this is most hated man in America. The last thing I want to cover today is this interesting situation of many, many uh, top-level resignations happening. And um, Q mentioned in his drops, or in their drops, I should say, um, about, you know, keep track of all the resignations because this is uh, representative of, you know, where people are 
re realizing <laughs> the jig is up, as it were. Now, Patriot One Substack, the one that I was reading from um, for the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, has another article that was only just published. New York City chief medical officer who ruled Epstein killed himself resigns the first day of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. On November 29, 2021, the first day of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, ABC reported that New York City Chief Medical Officer Dr. Barbara Sampson would be resigning. It had been over two years since Sampson had ruled Jeffrey Epstein's prison death as a suicide, determined by process of careful review of all investigative information, including complete autopsy findings. The autopsy was performed by Kristin Roman, MD. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. And then a friend, I'm going to give a hat tip to Joni, I won't say her last name, um, because she sent me a text that has an updated list of resignations, and this was from yesterday. So we've got Saskatchewan Health Authority CEO Scott Livingston has stepped down effectively immediately. Um, Austria Education Minister should resign his office for own reasons. Um, St. Louis non-profit's long-time CEO to exit in planned transition. He served as CEO of Variety, the children's charity of St. Louis for 25 years. Will leave the organisation December 31st. Um, finance minister in Austria resigns. Austria's federal challenge chancellor, Schallenberg, has quit. Uh, Ger Germany's Anton Hofreiter previously one of the two chairmen of the Greens in the Bundestag, is withdrawing from the leadership of the parliamentary group. Austria's Sebastian Kurtz stepping down from all political posts after corruption probe. Les Wexner to step down as the chair of the Columbus Partnership. Now that one's very interesting because, as I mentioned uh, when I was reading the trial reports, um, he was very close to Epstein and I believe provided his house in, I think it was New York City, just for the price of a dollar or something. And they were, uh, as I said, he was the head of the, the organisation that owned Victoria's Secret. Um, Nancy Mace's chief of staff resigns amid South Carolina Congresswoman's feud with conservatives. Um, Simone Sanders, senior advisor and chief spokesperson to Kamala Harris, resigns. A lot of her staff have been resigning, I think, because they can't stand her. Um, Eli Cohen to step down as Mecharot CEO. Twitter co-founder and CEO Jack Dorsey stepped down. That was a big one. Uh, and, of course, he has been known to... Uh, put tweets out that include satanic content. Walmart's longtime chief financial officer, Brett Biggs, is leaving the company. Uh, 24, sorry, director of LA County's Child Protection Services Agency just resigned. And we know that the Child Protection Services are involved in um, sex trafficking. Um, let me see now. Wynn Resorts announced that 45-year-old CEO Matt Maddox will step down. Owen Pat Patterson 
announced his decision to quit Parliament after major row erupts over Slee's allegations. Barclays Bank American CEO Jess Stanley resigned after an investigation into his relationship with disgraced financier convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Interesting. Ambassador Cindy McCain resigns from Arizona Human Trafficking Council. Chicago Park District CEO and General Superintendent Michael P. Kelly announced his resignation amid a controversy over sexual harassment and abuse. Uh, Johnson Johnson revealed that 61-year-old CEO Alex Gorski will be replaced by Deputy Joachim Duato on January 3rd, 2022. And this ends with, uh, do you believe in coincidences? Keep list updated. Flood of unstoppable track CEO resignations. The silent war continues. The swamp is being drained. Trust the plan. Justice Q. And that was from the Telegram account of Real John Quent. So that's it for this week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the show and got some good information from it. A quick reminder that you can find me at the successalchemist.net, the webalchemist.net, empoweredmanifestation.com. And um, I'd also like to thank Nancy for producing. So stay well, be safe, and bye for now.